This is a Rooster Teeth production. March 23, 1994. Aeroflot Flight 593, an Airbus A310, is flying over Siberia en route from Moscow to Hong Kong. There are 75 people on board this 10-hour-long international flight. Sitting in the pilot's seat is the relief captain's 15-year-old son. The plane is in autopilot flying east when it begins banking seemingly on its own. The captain begins struggling against the ever-increasing G-forces to get back into his seat and regain control of the plane. Over the next several minutes, the crew wrestles with a plane that is spinning and corkscrewing towards the ground below. What is the fate of Aeroflot 593? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. We're here to talk about planes. Hi, hey, Chris. Planes. Yeah, uh, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm uh, I'm seated firmly on the ground right now. It's been a little while since I've been on a plane. I miss it, but uh, I know I'll get on one again here pretty soon. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about traveling uh, well, every day. <laughs> it, it's weird. I haven't, and I normally have pretty frequent dreams about flying, but it's been a while since I've had one. I think I had a dream about being in an airport a couple of weeks ago, but it's been, it has not been as frequent lately for some reason. Yeah. Have you ever gotten to uh, sit with the pilot and uh, as his son or something, <laughs> sit in the co-pilot seat with a little captain's hat or whatever? Uh, no, I never did that. Did you? No. It seems like that would be fun. But no, I've never done that. And I especially have never done that while the plane is at cruising altitude in the air. Yeah. So uh, before we get into the meat of this episode, I do want to remind everyone to follow us on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, at BlackBoxDownPod. I know specifically there's a video I want to post uh, on Twitter that uh, shows a recreation of the final minutes of this flight that people are going to want to check out after hearing us talk about it uh, on today's episode. And of course, always, uh, if you enjoy this podcast, give us a good rating, refer us to a friend, let people know what we're all about. Uh, okay, Aeroflot 593. It was, a, it was a passenger flight from Moscow to Hong Kong. I'm going to attempt to say the Moscow airport name here, Chris. Uh, okay. There are a lot of Russian names here in this episode, and I'm going to do my best, so please don't pass judgment on me. <laughs> Sheremetyevo International Airport in Moscow to okay. uh, Tak Airport in Hong Kong. So uh, this Aeroflot flight was crewed by Captain Andrei Danilov, who was 40 years old, and he'd been with Aeroflot since November of 1992. He had about 9,675 flight hours. The first officer was Igor Piskoryov, who was 33, and he'd been with Aeroflot since October of 1993. He had uh, 5,885 hours of flight time. And the relief pilot was Yaroslav Kudrinsky, who was 39 years old. And he'd been with the airline since November of 1992 and had over 8,940 hours of flight time. Uh, in addition to them, there were nine flight attendants on board and 63 passengers. The aircraft that was in this incident was almost three years old, so it was still pretty new. It was an Airbus A310 that had been with the airline since December of 1992 and it had 5,375 hours on it, and it had done 846 landings. Hmm. You'll notice I said landings instead of cycles. I believe that the term landings is what uh, Russians use to uh, describe cycles. Okay. The, uh, the, the incident report was uh, obviously written in Russian since it's a Russian incident and uh, translated to English. So there's going to be a few incidents where I might use words that are a little different than we're used to, 
and I'll try to point it out when we get there. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of differences in the way that uh, Russian investigators approach a, an incident as compared to uh, other countries. Hmm. Uh, Dennis was pointing out to me uh, before we started recording. Dennis is our producer who does a lot of the research on uh, on these uh, episodes. Uh, we before we started recording today, Dennis was commenting on how most incident reports that we you know go into uh, for these episodes, the the official reports are over a hundred pages long. Uh, the incident report for this incident was about twenty two pages long. That's it. Yeah, so it's pretty short. They have a, a, a very different approach to uh, accident investigation, and uh, that, so we, we're going to have a little bit of some things that are a little different in this episode as compared to okay. uh, some of our other episodes. So I'll try to to point those out when we get to those. So the flight took off from Moscow at 1.39 p.m. Universal Time uh, in a heading of 247 degrees and climbed to 30,000 feet, where it turned to a heading of 36 degrees. At 2.18 p.m. Universal Time, the flight climbed to 33,000 feet and began following waypoints to Kai Tak Airport over in Hong Kong. Everything was normal for a few hours. Mm -hmm. uh, the captain, Captain Danilov, took his leave to go rest, you know, and is replaced by the relief pilot, Captain Kudrinsky, in the cockpit. How long had it been? Uh, at this point, it had been a couple of hours. I would estimate a little over three hours at this point. Okay, so it's just taking a little break, not like a nap or uh, going to bed. Yeah, this is like a 10-hour flight. So I, I can't say for certain if he was, you know, what exactly the the starting captain was doing. Uh, but you, like you said, he was probably just maybe taking a nap and just relaxing a little bit. So at 5.40 p.m. Universal Time, Kudrinsky, who's the relief captain, invited his 13-year-old daughter and 15-year-old son into the cockpit, along with a passenger who was also a pilot. And that passenger's uh, name was Makarov. Uh, I believe I read that um, that other pilot, Makarov and Kudrinsky, were neighbors. It just so happened that uh, they were both pilots and they lived by mm -hmm. each other. Uh, and they were all going to Hong Kong uh, together. It was uh, the pilot was taking, you know, they get incentives. They can take their family uh, for on flights for cheap once a year. So he wanted to take his kids to uh, to Hong Kong. It was the first time they were leaving the country going on an international trip. Gotcha. So, and you know, they all come up to the cockpit. They're talking. A few minutes later, Captain Kudrinsky invited his daughter to sit in his seat, in the pilot's seat. So he gets out of his station at 2.43 p.m. Universal Time, and the report notes that there was no formal transfer of controls here to the first officer, and that Kudrinsky continued being responsible for piloting the aircraft even though he had left his station. So he gets up, asks his daughter to sit down, but doesn't tell the first officer that he's in command. Okay, so he's he doesn't relinquish his power as it is. It, I don't know what the... Right. He would, you know, normally he would say, like, you have the controls, mm -hmm. letting the first officer know that. He's responsible. Yeah, but sh should the first officer know that the little girl is? You, you, you know that there's everything has a process when it comes to flying, Chris. Yeah. You have to follow the procedures, and that was not followed here. He, he did not relinquish it. So, I mean, the, I'll, I'll give a little more detail here in a minute. The pilot was still in charge of the flight. So before I get to the specifics of what happened there, I do also want to note that the report notes that Kudrinsky violated terms of the Civil Operations Flight Manual that state the pilots should remain at their stations at all times. So what happened here was a few minutes later, you know, with the daughter at the controls, Kudrinsky tells his daughter to fly the airplane and says, go ahead, take the controls. He tells her what not to touch. He, you know, he points out the autopilot disconnect button and says, you can touch the controls, but don't touch that. Uh huh. So between 5.37 p.m. and 5.50 p.m., the airplane turned left from a heading of 111 degrees to 102 degrees, and then right to 115 degrees, and then it returned to its original heading of 102 degrees. What happened was, Kudrinsky changed the autopilot from nav mode, and we've talked about nav mode before, where it goes from waypoint to waypoint. He changed it from that mode to heading mode, 
And what he was doing was he was turning the plane using the heading select knob. So he was still flying the plane, but he was using a knob to change the heading of the plane and the controls would move. And so it's, it seemed like the daughter was flying the plane, but really, you know, there was the autopilot doing everything. So he was doing this just to uh, entertain his daughter. Like, hey, look, you're flying the plane. Right, exactly. Okay. Uh, and then after, you know, they're done, uh, he put the autopilot back in navigation mode so that it takes back over and it starts flying to the, to the next nav point. Okay. According to the flight data recorder, the force applied on the control column was no more than two to four kilograms of force and was considered to be insignificant. And for our American listeners, two to four kilograms, that's probably roughly uh, five to nine pounds of force. The report here also notes that there was no situational need for this maneuver and that uh, it was a demonstration for the daughter and it could be considered distracting for the crew. His daughter left the seat at 5.51 p.m. universal time. And while the daughter was finishing up uh, her time in that seat, the first officer spoke with air traffic control, updating them on uh, you know, where they are in their flight and told them when they should expect to pass the next uh, waypoint at 5.59 p.m. Uh-huh. The report notes that first officer Piskaryov's seat was pushed all the way back at this point. That's going to become important in a bit. So, you know, it's just like in your car. You can slide the seat forward and back. His was all the way back. And who noticed that? The first officer? So the report notes Okay. The report's just noting that at this point, the first officer's seat is all the way back. So what's going on is you have kids in the captain's seat and mm-hmm. the first officer's seat is all the way back, probably because he's, you know, talking with the guests in the cockpit. Gotcha. At about 5.52 p.m., Kudrinsky's son took the left seat and the other pilot, the neighbor, Makarov, took a picture of the son sitting in the seat. Kudrinsky then decided to show his son the same maneuver that he showed his daughter. And at 5.54, they started what the report calls maneuver number two. Uh, And this is where things start to go a little haywire. Mm -hmm. Uh, The son asks if he can turn the control column, to which Kudrinsky replies, yes. And after a brief explanation on how the control column works, they begin the maneuver. And at first, it was very similar to the first maneuver. But then Kudrinsky is heard saying, okay, where you're going to turn, go to the left, turn to the left. And again, this part's translated from Russian. It's probably Uh not exactly correct. So that's roughly what was going on. The report at this point states that Kudrinsky has now let an unauthorized and unqualified outsider fly the airplane and that this and the preceding decisions and actions made by Kudrinsky and Piskaryov showed an utterly careless and irresponsible disregard of the flight safety. The son followed his father's instructions and turned the control column to the left about four degrees and held it there for about three seconds. And at this point, the autopilot's fully functioning normally. Uh-huh. The force on the left control column was at about 10 kilograms, which is just under 25 pounds. And it diminished as the plane turned more left due to Kudrinsky's input on the heading selector. So he's doing the same thing again. He's modifying the heading selector and the sun is, you know, wrestling with the column, but it's really the autopilot that's moving the column. But the sun is putting more pressure than the daughter was on the column. Okay. So the force on the control column increased to an area between 11 and 13 kilograms, which is between 24 and 28 pounds. And it caused an asymmetry in the deflection of the left and the right ailerons. This action triggered the torque limiting mechanism in the lateral control channel and caused the aileron actuator to declutch. I'm going to explain that here in just a second. Okay, as I was like, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple of mouthful sentences here, but I'm going to explain it here uh, when I'm done with them. The autopilot continued to function in the longitudinal control channel, but the declutching of the aileron actuator meant that no control inputs were being applied to the lateral control channel. So the longitudinal axis runs from the nose of the plane to the tail of the plane, and it's what the plane rolls on. So you think about like banking or rolling, that's like going along the longitudinal axis. Okay, and you'd say banking, that's like left to right, yes. I guess? Okay. 
the lateral axis runs through the wingtips, and that's the plane pitches up and down on that axis. Gotcha. So yeah, what that means here is that the autopilot could still roll the plane because it still had control over the longitudinal axis, but it was no longer in control of the lateral axis. So it no longer had control of the plane's pitch. It just had control of the plane's roll. Why did it only shut off half of it? So the way that autopilots work, like I think most people think of an autopilot as an on-off switch, where it's uh -huh. either on or it's off. But if you remember, that's not necessarily true. We've kind of covered this a little bit in the past. Like when we talked about Air France 447 entering alternate law mode, yeah. the autopilot wasn't functioning exactly how you expect it to. Autopilot's actually a piecemeal system where you can enable and disable many, many different features of it, depending on what it is that you want to accomplish. What had happened here was there was a feature in this plane that the pilots were unaware of, where if you struggled against the control column of the autopilot for 30 seconds, it would disengage that portion of the autopilot. But only the portion that you're struggling against? Right. So in this case, the sun was trying to turn the control column against the autopilot and he was giving it enough force for 30 seconds to where the autopilot disengaged control of the ailerons. Okay. So the autopilot had control of everything else. The autopilot had control of the engines. The autopilot had control of the elevators. It just no longer had control of the ailerons on the plane. Which you think like, it makes sense. You think that the person sitting at the controls understands what they're doing with the plane. And you think like, yeah, you would want the captain to be able to override the autopilot, right? In case the autopilot goes haywire. Ultimately, you do trust the human who's sitting there. Yeah. Just in this case, it's a teenager who has no experience <laughs> flying a yeah, plane you, who shouldn't be sitting you, there. You want to be able to trust whoever's flying the plane, except for, yeah, the child. Right. So the plane had reverted to manual flight in the lateral channel, which is what I just said. So shortly after Kudrinsky turned on the heading indicator to the right, he then put the autopilot back into nav mode. So, you know, he changed the heading uh, with the, the knob and put the autopilot back into nav mode, which caused the plane to bank right even more. Uh, Kudrinsky was not able to monitor his son on the controls because his daughter had started to distract him. And a few seconds later, the autopilot fully disconnected with no indication or warning from any of the instruments. So first it halfway disconnected, and then now it's just like autopilot off. Right. Then it just fully disconnects with no, no indication and no warning. The report notes that not only could the son not determine that the autopilot had disengaged, but he could not even know that this was possible. Again, he's not a pilot. You know, he, he doesn't know yeah. that. I mean, he thinks he's flying the plane. <laughs> right. But if Piskaryov had his hands on the controls, he would have been able to feel the disconnection, but only if he was the only one holding the controls. Since both he and the sun were holding them, he might have you know, thought that the feeling of disconnection was just the sun moving the controls. Based on how the controls were moving, the investigators determined that both the sun and Piskaryov were holding the controls. The airplane started to roll to the right gradually, but with no one noticing. A few seconds later, the airplane was in a 20-degree bank, but the angular velocity was small enough to where no one could tell that the plane was turning without looking at the instruments. So the plane was starting to turn, but since everyone's distracted and talking, they don't notice it. No one's looking at the instruments. Uh -huh. Then there was an additional force added to the controls that increased the bank to the right, resulting in a bank angle of 45 degrees, which is the operating limit of this plane. And that's a pretty severe bank. Like if you think about it, you know, even level flight is zero degrees. Let's say left wing all the way straight up at the sky is 90 degrees. So it's halfway between there at 45 degrees. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, that's the most you would do safely, right? Or right. Is that, that, that is, you wouldn't even do this normally. This is the operating limit of the plane. Gotcha. And all of this happened in a really short amount of time because, you know, we're still in that same minute of 5.55 p.m. 
At 5.55 p.m. with 36 seconds, the son asks Kudrinsky why the plane is turning. The son is the only one who noticed? Right. And Kudrinsky asks if it's turning by itself and then begins searching for the reason why the plane was turning this way. And at that moment, Makarov, who's the passenger, who was also a pilot, he made a suggestion and said, it's turning into the area, guys. To which Piskaryov said, we've reached the area, the holding area. Kudrinsky asked if that was the case, and Priskaryov replied with, of course. So what happens is on their display, you know, they have the little uh, the navigation window. All of a sudden, there's like an arc that appears on it. It looks like the plane's turning, you know, into what they interpret into a holding pattern. I don't know if you remember, uh, after we did the Qantas Flight 32 episode, on social media, I posted the flight path of that flight that showed uh-huh. they were circling. And you could see very clearly that they're in an oval uh, as they're yeah. troubleshooting. So if you remember, a holding pattern is just, it's like an oval. It's almost like a, like a NASCAR racetrack. So on their instruments, their navigation display had this course that was like, that showed like an arc. And the, the, the pilots couldn't figure out what it was. So they thought maybe the plane thinks we've entered a holding pattern and that's why it's turning, which of course is not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just what their interpretation of, of what's happening is. This episode of Black Box Down is brought to you by the flight attendant. Now, don't get confused. I'm not talking about a flight attendant on a plane. You know, I know that we deal with aviation here. I'm talking about the flight attendant, the new show coming out on HBO Max. It's from the co-creator of You and based on the novel of the same name by New York Times bestselling author Chris Bojalian. Uh, the flight attendant stars Kaylee Cuoco as Cassie Bowden. It's a flight attendant who wakes up in the wrong hotel in the wrong bed with a dead man and no idea what happened. The flight attendant is a smart, sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary, always fun thriller. Uh, it's streaming starting this Thanksgiving, uh, starting November 26th on HBO Max. You can sign up for HBO Max to watch Flight Attendant with the link in the description. Uh, it's got uh, Kaylee Cuoco, Rosie Perez, uh, great cast. And I know that we're all aviation buffs here. So I'm curious to see uh, how this show is. It starts November 26th on HBO Max. You can click on the link below to sign up or go to hbom.ax slash blackboxdown. You can sign up for HBO Max and watch the Flight Attendant. Okay, we got a different kind of sponsor for this episode. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. I know every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to podcasts. You nod, you say, sure, you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker. So you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. And when I say that, I mean, there's something for everyone here. I really mean it. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator for the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to trust and like you, which is useful and disturbing at the same time. It's another episode. It tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Uh, so here, there's a recent one that just came out where uh, Jordan talks about his trip into North Korea uh, several years ago. Uh, it's super fascinating. I'm always fascinated with uh, anything having to do with North Korea. Uh, he also has an interview with Billy McFarland, who you may know as the organizer of the Fire Festival. I'm sure you want to hear everything he has to say. Uh, Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. We're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. We really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So at 5.55 and 52 seconds the bank angle increased past 50 degrees and the plane started to descend. Uh, The vertical load factor increased to 1.6 Gs 
and the flight data recorder recorded high-frequency oscillations and buffeting caused by stall conditions induced on the wings as higher angle of attack was reached. So they're banking beyond the limits of this plane. There's more G-forces now on them, and the plane's starting to buffet because it's, uh, it's starting to stall. Okay. As the buffeting was felt in the cockpit, Kudrinsky shouted the command to hold the column. It is thought that the sun still sitting in the left seat understood this to mean to hold the column in a neutral position, but Piskaryov understood it to mean to turn the column to the left. Wait, so the sun is actually, they're giving commands to the sun, or is he just... They're unclear about this. Okay. So the, the, the captain's trying to shout commands. He's, it's not clear who he's shouting to, and the sun and the first officer both interpret his commands differently, so they both start doing different things with their columns. Oh, my God. All three of the adults in the cockpit started shouting things like, turn left and the other way. It's thought that they were shouting at the sun, who was still holding onto the column and interfering with uh, Piskaryov's inputs. And because Piskaryov's seat was pushed all the way back, he had limited control of the column. So he could barely reach it. Oh, and because no. of all the, ex- all the extra G-forces, it was difficult for him to get up to it. Over the next several seconds, alarms started going off in the cockpit. Two altitude discrepancy warnings, a stall warning, and the autopilot disconnect warning. The warnings for the altitude loss and autopilot had a higher priority, so they turned off the warnings for the stall. Between 5.56 and 4 seconds and 5.56 and 18 seconds, so over a 14-second period, Uh the bank angle increased to about 80 to 90 degrees. So almost the wing's almost straight up at this point. They're almost like on their sides. Exactly. And the plane started diving at a pitch angle that increased from negative 15 degrees to negative 50 degrees, and the vertical load factor increased to 2 Gs. So their left wing is almost straight up in the sky, and their nose is pitching down past a 45-degree angle towards the ground. Okay. And now they're all experiencing 2 Gs of pressure. So it's like whatever your weight is, it's like you weigh double what you normally do. And how fa- what was the amount of time it, that it went from normal to their like flipping over and double Gs? So to put it in perspective, at 5.55 and 36 seconds, that's when the sun asks why the plane is turning. Mm-hmm. 42 seconds later, the plane is angled at the ground, experiencing two Gs of force. So this is like moments. Moments. Less than a minute has yeah. passed in this time. And now they're plummeting at the ground at this point. And it's not at this point that the pilots have lost all spatial orientation. They don't know necessarily that they're going down. They don't know that they're how far they're rolled. They've just lost all sense of where they are. Kudrinsky calls for his son to get out of the seat, but it would have been difficult for him because of the two Gs of force and the narrow space. Mm-hmm. Piskaryov, who's the first officer, called out for the throttle to be set to idle and pulled back on the column, pulling the nose up and slowing the plane down to about 100 knots, which is really way too slow. Suddenly, the rudder deflected to the left and the plane entered a spin. It's thought that the sun accidentally stepped on the pedal while trying to get out of oh, the seat. God. Yeah, it hit the rudder and caused the plane to start spinning. Uh, the nose dropped to an 80 to 90 degree angle. So they're now pointed almost straight at the ground. Kudrinsky managed to get back into his seat and the two pilots did all they could to recover the aircraft, but it was uncontrollable. And at 5.58 p.m., the plane struck a hillside located uh, in the Kuznetsk Altu mountain chain in Russia, killing everyone on board. So they just just completely crashed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Within three minutes of the sun asking, why is the plane turning? Uh, They hit a, a hillside. And they couldn't do anything to like, I mean, I... It's, it's a little more involved. I, I kind of glossed over it a little bit here. Uh-huh. But what happens is, you know, like I said, Kudrinsky manages to get back into his seat. Uh, the first officer does recover the plane and manages to level it off. But in his panic, he pulls back too far and stalls the plane again. Okay. Yeah, they end up going back towards the ground. 
and they start spinning again. Kudrinsky manages to stop the spin uh, using rudder control. He uh, starts deflecting with the rudder and then manages to level the plane out again. But by that point, they've lost too much altitude and they hit the ground anyway. And then it, and because of all this, like I said, you know, they were diving, they recover and they dive again. The plane went from two Gs where everyone stuck to their uh, seat. Then everyone briefly experienced weightlessness because they were zero Gs as they were recovering. And then when they stalled the second time, it's reported that the forces went up to four Gs of force. Oh, Jesus. So that's like... Quadruple. Yeah. So like, let's say you're like a 150-pound person. Under four Gs, you weigh 600 pounds. So it's like, Man. there's no way you could move at that point. Yeah. And the, the video that I'm going to post on Twitter is there's a, a recreation of this, these final few minutes of the flight that show like a computer-generated image of the maneuvers that the plane was doing in this time. I know it's difficult to picture in your head when I talk about angles and... You know, the plane going down, pitching 90 degrees. Like, what does that actually look like? Well, the accident investigators recreated it using a computer simulation. And you can see an external view of what the plane looked like it was doing if you were watching it from a, a third-person perspective. Yeah, I want to see this. It's nightmare-inducing. I can't imagine how awful that must have been. So the investigation was carried out by the Air Transport Department of the Russian Ministry of Transport. And they concluded that the disaster was caused by a stall, spin, and impact with the ground resulting from a combination of several factors. There's six factors here I'm going to read. One, the decision by Kudrinsky to allow an unqualified and unauthorized outsider to occupy his station and intervene in the flying of the airplane. That's obvious, yeah. Right, yeah, you would think right off the bat that has something to do with it. Uh, number two, the execution of demonstration maneuvers that were not anticipated in the flight plan with Kudrinsky operating the autopilot while not at his station. And that's just the turns that the plane was doing, you know, when he was changing the knob for the heading. Number three, application by the outsider and the co-pilot of control forces that interfered with the functioning of the roll channel of the autopilot, thus overriding the autopilot and disconnecting it from aileron control linkage. So that's just what we talked about, the partial disconnection of the autopilot where the autopilot could no longer control the ailerons which is why the plane started behaving unusually. Since the plane was still trying to maintain its autopilot, it only had elevator control and engines. It was trying to manipulate those to get the plane going where it needed to go, but without using the ailerons, which was impossible. Okay, so yeah, the autopilot's doing its best to autopilot, but with only like with its arm tied around its back, essentially. Right, yeah, it doesn't have access to all of the airplane control systems, so it, it can't fly the plane. Yeah. You know, if, if there were a pilot seated there controlling the ailerons, doing what the autopilot expects, not a big deal. But since there's a, an unqualified teenager sitting there, then, you know, that's a recipe for disaster. Number four, the co-pilot and pilot in charge failed to detect the fact that the autopilot had become disconnected from the aileron control linkage, probably because there was no declutch warning. They could not feel the disconnection in the control column or because of the distraction of the daughter in the cockpit. <sighs> Number five, the failure to recognize the excessive right bank angle and focusing on why the plane was turning, which they wrongly determined to be entry into a holding pattern. Number six, the inappropriate and ineffective action on the part of Piskryov, who failed to push the control column forward when the buffeting occurred and the airplane entered an unusual attitude, causing a stall and a spin. Okay, this is right before where it's like it's going down. And then he pulls up, but he pulls up too hard. Is that correct? This is, you know, when they're on their side, when they're first starting to lose control and the plane's starting to slow down because the nose is starting to pitch up. Uh, like, you know, we've talked about this before. When you get a really low speed, when you got that buffeting, when you're about to stall, you need to nose down. Yeah. And he failed to do that, which uh, caused them to stall and spin. Before I get into the recommendations of this, I, I want to touch on something else that we've kind of discussed in the past. 
this is one of those incidents where Aeroflot is, for, for people who don't know, Aeroflot is a Russian-owned state airline. Uh, and they're flying, you know, an Airbus A310. This is in 1994, not too long after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And Aeroflot had, at the, up until this point, had, had kind of a checkered safety history. So they're almost incentivized to try to find reasons for this plane crash other than the kid sitting in the cockpit. <laughs> like, just think about it. Like, from, from their perspective, they want to try uh-huh. to maintain that they're still a safe airline, that maybe there were problems with the plane. So I think in their final report, they also comment on how there was no warning about the autopilot disconnection, just because the planes that these pilots were used to were not, they operated differently. They were used to flying Soviet-run planes. And I want to say that between the three pilots, between the original captain, the relief captain, and the first officer, they didn't have very much flying time in the A310. This was a very Mm -hmm. new, very different airplane for them that they had had to study for years. Um, This was a special branch of Aeroflot called Russia International Airlines. Like this was their elite premier airline, their elite premier planes, they're supposed to be their best pilots, and this accident still happened. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, they did anything to cover anything up. I'm not saying that Mm -hmm. there was anything shady done here. It's just we've talked in the past about how sometimes investigators might be incentivized to find answers to questions (laughs) enough to find alternate answers. Yeah. In this case, they want the Russian airline to look good. Right. They they want to make it seem like, oh, there were also other contributing factors as well. And it wasn't just because there was a child sitting at the controls. Uh, Again, it's, I mean, that's that's probably its own podcast, (laughs) getting into like the politics behind accident investigation. You know, you you would think that it's this objective process, but really, you know, emotions and uh, people's motivations can affect the way that uh, these things are written. So there were five recommendations that were made as a result of this incident. Okay. I can't guess one of them. Um, Okay, number one, in order to improve state oversight of flight safety, proposals should be prepared and submitted to the government of the Russian Federation concerning the strengthening of state inspection units and the inclusion of highly qualified specialists within them. So that just boils down to more oversight, just better oversight of flight safety. Number two, the necessary steps should be taken to increase cockpit discipline in flight and to organize effective monitoring of compliance with flight procedures using airborne voice and data recorders. So again, pay attention to what you're doing. Have, you know, discipline. We've talked about this kind of stuff before. Number three, flight crew training should be improved to take account of the special factors revealed by the investigation of this accident, including the monitoring of aircraft attitude during instrument flight and methods of recovering from unusual attitudes. So pay attention to your instruments and train on how to recover when things go wrong. Like, when they say unusual attitudes, they don't mean like someone with a bad attitude. They mean like <laughs> strange positioning of the plane, you know? Yeah, when when something goes wrong. Right. Though we don't know the attitude of that kid. We don't. I, I'm, it might be on the cockpit voice recorder, but we don't, we don't know for certain. He might have had a bad attitude. The plane definitely had a bad attitude. That definitely. we can say definitively. Had, no, it had a bad altitude. It, well, it had both. It had both. It had, uh, we, maybe we should make another shirt. Ask me about my bad attitude. <laughs> uh, okay. Number four. Review the question of creating within the Russian civil aviation system single-type operations centers for aircraft of foreign manufacture. So this was a foreign manufactured plane. The pilots weren't as used to it. Um, There's differences between the way Russian planes are manufactured and you interface with them versus, in this case, Airbus, which is, you know, European. Yeah. Number five. Together with the aircraft designers and in cooperation with specialists from the research organizations of the Russian Federation, determine the measures necessary to prevent airplanes from exceeding their operating bank and angle of attack limits and to prevent the autopilot from disengaging its aileron control function without warning. 
So you'll see specifically number four and number five in those recommendations kind of try to shift the blame a little bit to the plane. They're not saying it's the plane's fault, but they're saying Uh we need to be more mindful of foreign manufactured planes. We need to figure out ways to keep autopilot uh, disengaging from aileron control without warning. You know, they're trying to shift it a little bit there. You know, these are things that wouldn't have happened if, again, the captain hadn't allowed uh, his 15-year-old son to sit at the controls. They're just saying, but the plane's autopilot changed. Right. And they talk very broadly. Before I started reading these recommendations, you said you could guess what one of them was going to be. And it wasn't one of them, was it? There's no, There's, not one of those recommendations was keep unauthorized personnel from operating the plane. Especially children. Right. Don't let the kids fly. Right. Kids should not be flying. Well, I, mean, I guess they could if, they, if they're qualified to, but in this case, they yeah. were not. So these are all kind of very broad recommendations about flight safety in general. And it's it's really kind of disheartening. I feel like that's the thing that makes me most nervous. For the most part, I, I always tell you, I feel flying's very safe. It is, and it is. It's a very safe medium. The thing that always worries me about flying is the people. How many of these incidents have we covered where we say there was poor cockpit discipline or there was poor crew resource management? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the plane wants to fly. The plane is designed to fly. It's when people fail you. And that's the thing you can't quantify. There's no inspection for that. There's no check for that. There's, you know, there's training and you would hope that people remember their training and rely on it and do the right thing. But ultimately, on almost every of these incidents, it's human failure, which lets you down and causes these tragedies. Yeah. And they all died mm-hmm. for no reason. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, totally no reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was mostly um, Russian citizens and uh, Hong Kong businessmen. Like I said, the Soviet Union had just collapsed a few years before. So they were like, it was Hong Kong businessmen coming trying to find business opportunities in Russia. Uh, and you said that like the way that uh, Russia kind of presents the cases and they, you know, they, they maybe had motivation to hide what actually happened from a press perspective or, or public knowledge. How widely known was it that the kid was flying the plane? Or was that kind of discovered later? I don't know how the media presented it at the time. Uh, I, c- I couldn't answer that. I know that the report clearly states that, you know, there was a child in the cockpit. Uh, I know that the information was there. I don't know how it was presented. Mm. I can't say. Uh, and I think that some of the families of the victims were very upset with the way it was handled. I know there was, uh, I forget his name, there was a, a British citizen on board this flight who was going to uh, to Hong Kong. And his family was was really upset because they weren't they were kind of given the runaround by airline officials and by the investigators as to what was happening and trying to recover their their son's remains. And so there was some level of trying to keep things hush hush. But mm-hmm. the information's all there in the report. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. I mean, that's the story of um, Aeroflot 593. Uh, terrible, totally, uh, like most of these, totally preventable tragedy that hopefully, you know, the whole industry learns from. I, I feel like this is something that that was invo- avoidable. Uh, people, the, the pilots knew this ahead of time. Like, this wasn't like we learned something new from this incident. Yeah, yeah. That's just like, don't do that. Right. This is, I, I'm going to say, probably one of the most frustrating incidents that we're going to cover for any of the episodes that we do, because it was preventable from beginning to end. I mean, I, I get that the father's proud and he wants to show his kids, but I mean, there's people's lives at stake here. It's just tragic. I, I, I mean, even on a real road, on a car, you don't put your kid at the steering wheel, and then take a nap in the back seat. Right. I think that they were just overly reliant on autopilot doing uh, all the work when you know, obviously yeah. this was a newer plane that they weren't as familiar with and it just ended up backfiring on them. Yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, that just about does it. Uh, before we go, I do want to remind everyone that if you want to support us, we have a shirt you can purchase at store.roosterteeth.com. Uh, I'm not wearing mine right now. I've got it right here with me. I'm looking at it. You can't see it because it's an audio podcast. It's a, it's a really nice shirt. <laughs> it is. It says black box down. It's got a silhouette of a plane. It's really neat. Go to store.roosterteeth.com and check it out. It's one of those shirts when you're wearing it, people are like, what's that? And you have the opportunity to tell them about your favorite podcast. Yeah, it's, it, it'll help you in your mission to tell someone else about this podcast. And uh, we also have uh, some videos uh, available at roosterteeth.com. We try to fly the flight paths of some of the incidents that we've talked about. That we can get like a look. We look around and uh, and see uh, what the terrain is like and what the area is like. And we try to recreate some of the incidents as best we can within Microsoft Flight Simulator. And it's available to first members on roosterteeth.com, which is uh, kind of like uh, our Patreon is the way Chris normally describes it. Yeah. It's like a way to to show support for us. And you can check it out. You can get a seven-day free trial if you want to take a look and, and see some of the videos that we've uploaded. And it helps support us if you sign up for it. And also, I will say this. I'm not plugging it because it's just a thing. It's actually really cool. It actually <laughs> does add like a different perspective when you're on the plane and then trying to recreate, okay, well, how do we land? Where do we go? What's down there? Oh, there's the ocean. Okay, can we make it over that lake? It's just it, it just adds a different element and perspective to the crashes. I think the thing I'm, I'm, that I find most fascinating when we make those videos is exactly how long these incidents take, like how mm-hmm. long you're in the air, like the ones that we've done so far. It, it must be terrifying if you're on that plane. You know, we, we try to recreate it and it takes us, you know, 30 minutes or something. It's like someone sat there and had to go through that experience for that long period of time. The, the pilot and stuff, then also just the passengers, knowing that the plane is slowly crashing. Mm-hmm. But uh, check it out. Uh, like we said, uh, you can watch those videos. Just search for Black Box Down at roosterteeth.com. And you can search for our shirt at store.roosterteeth.com. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next week. 